Hello, I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a conversation featuring fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, business, and more. My guest today is Dr. Mary Ann Stevens, who has served as president of College of St. Mary since 1996. Our conversation today is being recorded by Zoom. Support for this show comes from the Greater Omaha Chamber of Commerce. We don't coast, we accomplish more together. Details at omahachamber.org. Since 1996, Dr. Marianne Stevens has served as president of College of St. Mary, the region's only Catholic university for women. Under Dr. Stevens' leadership, College of St. Mary has developed several innovative programs to increase accessibility and affordability of higher education, including an on-campus residence hall where single mothers live with their children, a kids' club for children of students and staff to learn remotely during the pandemic, and generous scholarships for undocumented students. Dr. Stevens was inducted into the Omaha Business Hall of Fame in 2018, and she serves on several boards, including the Greater Omaha Chamber of Commerce Board, and the board of the Association of Catholic Colleges and Universities, for which she chairs the board membership committee. Dr. Stevens, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks very much. I'm one of two children, and I'm I'm the youngest. My sister is the oldest child, uh, so it's hard for me to imagine a family of eight, and and you were the eldest. And I I wonder um, what the spread of ages was like, and if you felt any I don't know particular pride in being the oldest, but also any particular burden of also perhaps being the oldest of this, like this tribe of eight. Grow up with a gang of eight and uh, you always have friends, uh, no matter where you are. Uh, even if you fight like cats and dogs, you know, um, the, uh, and uh, I would say to you that um, it was just a good childhood. I felt a tremendous amount of pride in being uh, the oldest girl and certainly some burdens, you know, because we always had to watch the younger children. Um, and actually, we had a very elaborate setup that one of my sisters is still upset with me to this day for setting up for who would take care of the baby. We had a morning shift, an afternoon shift, and an evening shift, and then we switched days. It was all written up, um, you know, and I was always trading, but then never paying somebody back, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, the other thing I did when I was a child is, um, and I think it's what uh, brought me to an understanding of myself as a teacher, is we used to play school because our teachers, of course, were wonderful role models to us and we wanted to be like them. And so we would set up a schoolroom and we would, uh, in California, when the weather was always good, we did it out on the patio and even some of the neighborhood kids would come after the regular school and we would all, we would teach them how to do their homework, you know, kind of thing. Uh, I grew up in a Catholic family. And so we also played mass. And of course I got to be the priest handing out the <laughs> necklace wafers for communion. Um, because, uh, so that those were part of the glories of being oldest. Your father was in the, the air force. 
How sort of aware were you of the military nature of the family? And did that sort of inform and influence you at all? I think in many ways, there was a certain amount of scheduling or regimentation. I don't know that it was overbearing, but that, like I said, the schedule for babysitting even was all written down and and put together. Uh, So I think there was a lot of structure in our lives and we had a sense of that. I always joke when I, after I moved here um, and I was in high school, uh, the night of the junior prom from high school, a couple of friends of mine and I went out to the Offutt Air Force Base golf course. We were on our way home, but we started partying in the golf course and the MPs brought us home. I think we were aware that there was surveillance and protection. And that was kind of a, a hard story for, for me, but I think we were also feeling very secure as a result of being on an Air Force base. And then unfortunately, I would say to you that, um, especially in the light of all the racial tension that we have today in our world, um, I think we were not interacting hardly at all with people who were different than we were. So all the people on the block, you know, everybody was Caucasian, All our dads were officers because officers live in a different section than enlisted men or non-commissioned officers. And it was all males going to work. Do you know, women by and large were were staying home. So there was a lot of things about it that were very insular. I don't want to stretch this too far, but but some degree of rebelliousness uh, in, in your life. I'm just wondering if you would reflect a little bit on that balance between a little bit of rebellion in you and uh, as well as a little bit of uh, being responsible. Yeah, I think, I think that's an interesting question, Stuart, because I suppose uh, one of the things that I've grown to understand about myself is the willingness to take risks in, in my work. Uh, and people s- surprise at that. And it, probably uh, is rooted in those days where if you, if you do have not too much regulation, but enough, and uh, then there is the space though to, to respond to it differently. And I would say that's really true by and large in my, in my family. Um, you know, uh, one of my sisters married a conscientious objector in the heights of the Vietnam War. I had another sister who married an African-American in her remains happily married today. Um, so a little bit of pushing against against the grain, if you will. I think there's a strain of that, at least in those of us that are older in the family, if not those of, uh, who are younger.
thinking about those experiences then, I know you then became involved with uh, the Sisters of Mercy. And I don't really have a firm understanding of what the Sisters of Mercy as, a, as an organization or a philosophy or a faith-based tradition, what that is. And I wonder if you would mind just giving me some introduction. Well, the Sisters of Mercy are a, a Catholic religious order of women who were founded in the early 1800s in Ireland by a woman named Catherine Macaulay. And Catherine Macaulay grew up during the difficulties or the troubles between Protestants and Catholics um, in Ireland uh, in the late 1700s, early 1800s, when there was tremendous disparity between who was wealthy and who was poor. And she grew up in a Catholic family and her, and her father happened to be middle class, but he died very, very young. And he was the, the, the keeper sort of of the faith and the Catholicism in the family. And so Catherine and her siblings were farmed out as a result of the loss of money and her mother got sick and ultimately died when she was a teenager. They were farmed out to different people to be raised and to help. And Catherine ultimately um, found her way to be the head of the household of a Quaker couple. And um, they, because of who she was and how she helped them um, throughout their elderly life, they left her their entire inheritance. And because of an experience she had had, there was often people who were housekeepers in those days, you know, and there was a head of the housekeepers, which was what she was. And the people would stay in the quarters of the people. There had been a young woman from a neighboring home who had fled and asked her to take care of her because she was being abused by the gentleman of the neighboring house. And Catherine couldn't do anything about it. She wasn't in any kind of situation where she could. But when the Quaker couple left um, her, their entire inheritance, which had been, which would have been about a million dollars at the time, she decided to build a house in a very fashionable section of Dublin where women who were coming in from the rural areas to serve in the homes of the gentry could stay and go out only during the day. And so she started this house um, and uh, the women, as they, they became friends and as they lived together, they would go out also and they would feed the children in the streets and they would go to what were very rudimentary hospitals, you could barely call them that, and visit the sick. Um, on Saturdays and Sundays when they weren't working in the homes of the gentry. And as a result of that, the Catholic uh, Church came to her and said, I think you've started a convent. So she, well, through lots of uh, dealings, she, she acquiesced to that. And she wrote a constitution and sent it to Rome for the Sisters of Mercy. And the difference, there were, there were religious orders at that time, certainly, but they would take vows of poverty, celibacy, and obedience. She added a fourth vow to serve the poor, the sick, and the ignorant. And from there, different convents of mercy spread around Ireland and even into England. Uh, and then uh, as the Irish were settling in the United States, Irish bishops called upon the Sisters of Mercy to come to the United States to teach um, the children of the Irish who were coming here. And so the Sisters of Mercy now are a worldwide organization 
of Catholic women who are take that fourth vow to serve the poor, the sick, and we often say today the uneducated rather than the ignorant. What was it then that drew you? What called you to take that step to be more actively involved with um, the sisters? I don't think you could grow up as a, a young girl in the 50s and the early 60s uh, in a Catholic school and not dream of being like your teachers, most of whom were nuns. And so I think that was the inception of the call. Uh, when we moved here to Omaha, I went to Mercy High School, which of course was taught at that time primarily. There were a few lay women teaching, but primarily by the Sisters of Mercy. And, and I wanted to be like them. I noticed that they were always attentive to even the person who was the least academically able. I noticed that they were, um, there was sometimes sandwiches being made for girls to take home. And I wanted to be part of that. And that led to my entrance to the Sisters of Mercy. It's always interesting to me in terms of faith, whether people are called to take a pathway that is more spiritual and contemplative, uh, maybe even monastic and, and uh, embraces solitude. And what I might think of a little bit more, as you're describing, a pathway that is very active, very outward, very community focused, and as it were, living your faith values in the community with the neighbors around you. And I'm wondering if, notwithstanding the history you described, if you ever had a moment during that period where you thought you were more called towards a faith that, that was a little more private and contemplative, or if you've always felt more activist, as it were. I think I've always always felt more activist, but I do, but I do know that Without solitude or without contemplation, meditation, you don't have any, uh, that's what roots it in faith, do you know? Um, because all of us, I think, or I, I hope, certainly I did, when I was a young person, I was very idealistic. I mean, you know, Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy, and I mean, those were the people of my formative uh, elder teenage years um, and look what they were doing in the country and the idealism that was there. But th that idealism is going to be dashed pretty quickly because human reality comes along and says, well, it's not going to quite get there as soon as you believed it could or would. And that's where um, it's so important to be rooted, uh, any of your activism to be rooted in a in a deep faith which necessitates solitude, contemplation, meditation. Do you see that in the last sort of 25 years of your life, this transition from idealism into practically applying these values and these spiritual tenets that you follow into the real world? And for you, that's education. I'm a little older than only the last 25 years of my life, <laughs> let me say it that way. But uh, I would say first, you know, first I was a teacher. So before I went to College of St. Mary, I taught for 10 years in Creighton's theology department after receiving a PhD in, in theology. And I would say uh, helping students learn what I just talked about, that the value of having their ideals sustained and believing that they would be workable 
even if not the same way that they might believe at 18 they are workable and allowing that to grow. So I would say teaching, teaching was my first passion. I had no, uh, no image of myself as an administrator or uh, certainly a president of a college. Um, but now that I am, I would say to you that, yes, I mean, you know, so you have a, a woman come to me who was a junior at the College of St. Mary, um, and she was living in our residence hall, and she said to me, sister, I'm pregnant. This was like April. I'm pregnant, and my mom doesn't really want to take care of my baby in Hardington, Nebraska, which is about three hours away. And so I don't know what I'm gonna, how I'm going to finish my senior year if I can't bring my baby back to the residence hall. And so what I said at the time, which is what I always say when I don't know what to say, is let me think about it. But immediately my vision goes to how do I respond to this need, which I think is a mirror of what Catherine McCauley said, how do I respond to this need? Well, I'll build a house so people don't have to live in the homes of the gentry overnight. I think my idealism has been shaped to respond to need. So an undocumented student can't access federal financial aid uh, for student loans. How do we respond to that need? I don't go looking for it, by the way. <laughs> I mean, right. it presents itself. I thought I could read the signs You were sending up flares Red and gold everywhere I remember my hands Thinking I had a chance Reaching out for a dance In the fiery I saw a, a heading in a World Herald article a while ago. Uh, Dr. Marianne Stevens, she rescued a failing college. So not only did you become president of this institution, but at the time it was failing, according uh, to, to reports. So why? Well, it's kind of an interesting story, a little bit embarrassing, but I'll tell it. 
the um, I was uh, on the board. I had been on the board of the college for about four years before I assumed the presidency. And the college was in very difficult straits. And the board decided to release the, the president and hire an interim president, and which you can do from a national registry. And so we hired an interim president while we thought through you know, whether the college, basically the question was on the table, should the college close um, or should it go forward? The board was split, but they was, the chair of the board was willing to name a search committee to search for a new president. And the, he asked me if I would be the chair of that search committee. And so I said, yes. And so the search committee was doing its deliberations and we were on the cusp right within an hour of hiring uh, the woman we had done interviews and we had had three um, finalists, two of them at the top, uh, the woman that we wanted to hire all the way through the search. She really, she was excellent. She was coming from a school in the East as a vice president for academic affairs. At the last minute, she choked because we offered her the position and she said, I don't um, think I can come. My uh, son is going to be, my youngest son is going to be a senior in high school. And I thought I could do it. But now when push comes to shove, I just can't leave him for his senior year and be in a commuter marriage during that time. And so we were sitting there at 7.30, 8 o'clock in the morning trying to think, oh my God, what are we going to do? Because the next person was a distant second and we weren't sure we wanted her. So I left the room uh, to use the facilities. And when I came back, the other members of the search committee said, we think you should do it. And <laughs> I, I, I just like that, I said, I, I don't think so. And I, well, I, what I really said was, I have a job. That's what I said. I said, I have a job. And, um, but they chatted with me for a while. And I said, let me think about it. And so what I did that evening, I went over to the college and I walked around and I thought, you know, I probably could do this. And I, I really did feel a call to do it. Um, I was passionate about, uh, about women and women's education and women's growth and wanting to call forth that kind of potential. So I went to the uh, Dean of Academic Affairs at Creighton and I said, I'm thinking about this. I happened to be chair of the theology department at the time. And he said, Marianne, I think you need a little bit more experience, you know, to jump from being a chair of a department to being president. And I said, yeah, I, you know, I probably do, but I really feel like this is something I should do. And so I took a leave of absence from Creighton. I was kind of, I was tenured. So I was a little nervous about losing, losing my job. <laughs> Let me say it that way. You know? <laughs> so I went over and the rest is history. And, you know, Creighton called me, Creighton, because I had taken a leave of absence, they were prevented from hiring somebody in my place. And so they called me a year later and they said, are you ever coming? If you're not ever coming back, please let us know. And so I did. And the rest is history. Would you just maybe just give us the 60-second overview of the, you know, the, the facts and figures of the college? Well, the college, the college today enrolls a little over 1,000 students. About 700 of them are undergrads, 300 graduate students. 
when I started, we were enrolling about 600 students. We had no graduate programs. At this time, we have um, about 300 beds in our residence halls. We built one for the single mothers. So at that time, we would have had maybe, maybe uh, 250, I guess. But anyway, um, the pro so the programs have matured, the numbers have matured, um, the budget has matured, <laughs> you know, and the support has um, matured. Let me say it that way. Between the age of 11 and 18, my school, I went to the same school for that period of time, uh, and it was an all-boys school. I'm curious about what you said earlier, being focused on education for women. And I don't know if it's actually an, an, an African proverb or the actual source of it, but the idea of if you educate a man, you educate an individual, but if you educate a woman, you educate a family and a nation. And so I'm, I'm just curious about why an all-women college and what are the benefits of that? I think one of the biggest benefits of going to uh, actually any single gender college, but I think it benefits women more in some ways, is uh, the relationships that people form with one another. So the sisterhood, if you will, that is formed. I dare say, at least historically, the brotherhood would, have, would be formed anyway. Um, but the sisterhood sometimes uh, goes off track because um, young women, um, so the research say, begin to put their own voice down in the interest of courting or in the interest of dating, in the interest of being noticed by the opposite gender. And so single sex education, I think for the woman can form this sisterhood where they find their voice and not just find it, but use it. They tend, all the research says that um, women tend to ask higher order questions in the classroom when they're just with themselves. They tend to ask questions at all, do you know, um, and, and tend to find themselves um, studying more and being more attentive to what they need to learn. And that's why I'm, I'm quite concerned about the, all the movement to being isolated when you are um, studying or learning. So I think those, that's, that's one of the major benefits is women finding their voice. And I think we're seeing, well, we're making history today with the number of women who have found their voice. And, you know, Kamala Harris, for instance, talks about in her own reflections, not just going to Howard University, which was of course co-ed, but the sorority at Howard University and her sorority friends and, and the sisterhood there. And so people can find it in a variety of different ways. They don't have to go to a single gender institution. They can find it through the Girl Scouts do you know? But unfortunately, some of those avenues for young girls have gone away because there's not as many women who aren't working and can be volunteers to lead them.
you've talked about needs. How have the needs of students, your students, changed generally over the last 20, 25 years? I think students today are much more anxious. They are much more, um, I want to say self, self-absorbed, but I don't mean that to mean selfish as much as I mean concerned about their safety, concerned about um, concerned about themselves in a way that is not necessarily, well, it's certainly not pathological, but it's, it's good and it's not good. Do you know? Um, It's sort of a double-edged sword. I think (laughs) students, I think students are expecting, are are, are a little more entitled um, in many ways. Some students, depending on who's, who brought them up. We have helicopter parents who, uh, you know, today it's much more common for parents to be friends with their kids, go to the same movies, read the same books ever since Harry Potter. Do you know, um, whereas in my generation, my parents, they sent us to the movies, you know, to have their own time. So that's just a small example, but um, I think students come feeling a little bit more entitled. They're certainly more computer savvy uh, and technologically savvy and distracted by technology. Their attention span is shorter. They want, I just read this recently, they want people to speak more quickly. Um, Whereas when I was teaching, it was important not to slow down, but to make sure you were somewhat measured and repeating yourself more often. Education is different today or needs to be different if it's going to keep students interested. Why are students interested in College of St. Mary? You know, that's a really good question. I ask um, students that all the time. I say, now, why College of St. Mary? You know, I, I'm known for speaking to students as I see them in the hall. I, I ask them how they are. I ask them how their day is. Um, uh, some of them will even say to me, I think you saw me at eight o'clock this morning and ask that same question and it's two o'clock, you know. So, uh, and often if there's a little bit more time, I'm on the elevator with them or whatever, uh, or see them in the lunch line. I say, why'd you choose College of St. Mary? You know, uh, oftentimes it's uh, my friend went here, my mother went here, uh, somebody at work told me about it, et cetera. It's the word of mouth is very good about it. The, the nursing program, which is our largest program is well-received in the community of healthcare, the healthcare industry. So I don't think they come because it's a women's college. I think they, they find out later while they're there, the benefits of, uh, or the contrast. A lot of students come because it's smaller rather than larger. They try the larger college. Some students come because of the Mother's Living and Learning program, or they come because, primarily because of the program. Do you know whatever program they're in? I heard that you really have good science programs or you have good nursing or, you know, or I wanted to come to the big city. I'm from Ravenna, Nebraska. I wanted to come to the city, but I didn't want to be in, you know, I wanted to be in a smaller place. You mentioned the Mother's Living and Learning Program, and I would love to learn a little bit more about Again, what, what presented itself to you and then how you decided to address that? 
I'm really curious, not just how those students respond to it, but I'm really curious also how the students not in that program respond and interact with the students in that program. Well, as I said before, um, it started, it was not in my mind's eye, you know, um, it started in the year 2000, April, a student from Hardington, Nebraska came to me, said, sister, I'm pregnant. I don't know how I'm going to finish my senior year unless I can have my baby come to the dorm. And I said, let me think about it. And this is what I think is the angels. The very next week, I saw an article in the Chronicle of Higher Education about a school in Chambersburg, Pennsylvania, that had bought a house, a women's college, bought a house down the street for single mothers and their children to live while they were going to school. I called the president there and I asked if our residence life people, two people could go out, learn about what they did. What are the rules? Like, how do you do this? They came back and they said, there's only two rules. Children cannot be unaccompanied and they can't be in class. So I said, I think we can do this. Let's sit down. So we had a little meeting and we talked about naming it. And we also had what, what really provided the opportunity was the college's main building was built as a convent with classrooms attached. So in what had been convent space, which wasn't being very well used, I mean, there were people up there in offices or something, but it wasn't very well used. There were even bathtubs in the restrooms. And so we were able to take a wing of that and we started that fall with eight um, mothers and their children. <laughs> the side of the building where those mothers would come in the door at the time didn't have a handicapped ramp. It just had steps. And so I had the bright idea of putting parking spaces out there uh, with just the first names of the mother and the child. And that probably created the most controversy because have a baby and get a parking space. Do you know, I mean, like, but we weathered that. Um, and they, actually the program grew like Topsy and we kept adding space to it. And then in 2012, we built a freestanding residence hall uh, called Madonna Hall after mother and child. The other issue that arose from the faculty was, isn't it a liability to have children on the campus? What kind, do we have insurance for that? So I called our lawyer and she said, Marianne, you have a swimming pool. That is your biggest liability. Do not worry about having children on your campus. Uh, and then the angels again, John Gottschalk, who was the publisher of the Omaha World Herald, had been leading something at the time was called Omaha 2000. And what it was, was an initiative to study why kids in whatever grade, fourth grade or third grade, when they take those tests, they're not at grade level. So their math isn't, their reading isn't. And what he found out in doing that research was that children weren't ready to go to school. And so he was looking for a place to build a model child development center so as to convince corporate Omaha, First National, ConAgra, Mutual, um, et cetera, to build child development centers on their campuses. And we had the land. So at the same time, 
Omaha 2000 opened an er not a daycare, an early childhood development center on our campus. And we negotiated to have the children from our Mother's Living and Learning program who were under school age and mo the median age of all the kids has always been about two, um, go up to that center. And that continues today. So the center is open to the public, but about 30 of the children today are College of St. Mary uh, students' children. And so what has been the impact then on the other students that aren't in the program? Well, the other students that aren't in the program now that, you know, they come on campus and first of all, they, there's no need for the parking signs anymore because they have their building and there's parking around it. But even that after two years, you know, it becomes normal that those signs are out there. So the students who aren't mothers really enjoy babysitting sometimes for the kids or playing with the kids. The, the, the single mothers and their children who live on campus all come to the same dining hall with the kids who aren't mothers, the students who aren't mothers. So I think it, I think, I think it says something about the value of motherhood. I think it also says something about the pro-life. You know, if we are not going to provide the resources for a mother to raise her child, then let's stop talking about anti-abortion. Um, and then the mothers have peer, they find themselves with people who are also in the same situation. There's no shame. There's 30 of us, do you know? Um, and there's actually we, about 13% of our students are single mothers, but only about 30 live on campus. The, um, so we've also become known as a place that is comfortable for single mothers, if you will, and for parents, um, even mothers who are partnered. But the people I really want to study ultimately are the children, many of whom are getting an excellent early childhood education who would not have that opportunity otherwise. Uh, indeed, one of them is going to graduate. The first one of the infants in the, in the year 2000 is now getting ready to graduate from College of St. Mary in another year. talked at the top there about the drama of you assuming this role uh, with a college that was struggling. Um, now it isn't. What has been for you the hardest administrative or operational challenge to um, kind of turn around? In the beginning, it was very hard because we had to make a lot of changes and that rattled people a lot. Um, some people left. 
some of that was a good thing. Some of that was unfortunate. So I, I think that time was the hardest, but I would say to you through it, I feel like I've been president of four different colleges, you know, because they, it's changed so much. Like we didn't have outside email when I went. I mean, if you, you can't even imagine that today. Um, but I, I would say to you always, I think personnel issues, space issues are the operational challenges. Um, I think it was true in the beginning and it's always true now, but it's much less because we're not trying to change everything. And we were, we were truly trying to reinvent the college in 1996 to 2000. Have you reinvented yourself along the way? No, I probably have grown a lot though. I, I tease, I say to, um, I mean, I, I say to people, but you know, people, people find me very, uh, warm and engaging and et cetera. Well, I can tell you my first five-year evaluation of the college said things like, I didn't respect people. I was mean. I was, you know, I mean, and because I was all about the task. And so in that sense, I think I have really grown. I was all about the task. I'm still about the task. I'm still, that's my natural tendency to be about, okay, what are the numbers? How are we doing? Are we, what are, what are our scores on the national board for nursing exam or whatever? But I'm, I'm probably a kinder, gentler person today than I was 25 years ago. Are you still the idealist? Oh, very much so. Very much so. I still, yes, I still want, uh, like today, one of the biggest issues that I think is confronting the college today is is inclusivity. Uh, about 30% of our students are from underrepresented groups, um, but they don't all, I, I have come to know what I didn't know is how uncomfortable some of them have felt. So I think we don't, we don't know enough about our unconscious bias. We don't know enough about what may be even conscious bias that exists among us. So yes, I'm here to say we need to do something about that and we can, and that's the idealism. Not only do we need to, but we can, and we can change. And that's a piece of what idealism is about. I can recognize that you might want to be humble, but I also want you to brag about yourself too. Um, it feels to me in a social landscape that is hyper-partisan where the idea of shaming you know, single mothers would, I, I think, just turn on social media and, and, and you can see that writ large. The Me Too movement has highlighted, you know, yet another wave of recognition of this seemingly perpetual gender bias. Um, and then you also mentioned that you have a scholarship program for undocumented students. I'm curious about what kind of pushback you feel from society outside of your four walls and how you, you yourself can sort of hold that at bay the image that's coming into my mind is what you described earlier, which is this safe space at a military base where you could have a little mischief when you were younger. And so I'm just wondering how you as a president of an institution, a leader in the community, are able to kind of hold a safe space and maybe even push back on some of these negative social you know, perspectives. Well, I think one thing that we do with regard to both the undocumented students and the single mothers, is we're very transparent about it. 
And I think people kind of find that, oh, um, do you know? And <laughs> like, oh, um, yes, we're going to talk about this. Or I, I want to be very transparent about racism and how we are uncovering it. I think that is a piece of, of the key towards creating the safe space because, well, we're going to talk about it or we're going to talk as a Catholic institution about accepting LGBTQ um, students, faculty and staff, you know, we're going to talk about it. it. Certainly there will be naysayers, but people feel more secure talking about it because by the way, they're talking about it anyway. Do you know? I mean, how many, how many people today know someone who's gay? How many people have in their families experienced somebody getting pregnant without being, having the re, it's not just not being married or whatever, but it, without having the resources to raise their child. In other words, not an education. Um, how many people have experienced or know the experience, seeing the experience of racism? So once you begin talking about it, I think people feel safer, at least in the within. There'll always be naysayers, even within, but the majority of people will feel safer, I think. recording this at a time that President Biden has just been inaugurated, and he's well known for his Catholic faith. The current Pope, Francis, is also, I think, known for a more um, humanitarian expression of Catholicism uh, than perhaps has been evident with the popes before him. I mention that because I'm wondering for you, uh, you've talked about some of these tensions and there's obviously some tension within sort of the, the large Catholic family, um, but also socially as well around the world and in the country. I'm wondering, where do you turn when you feel a bit low? And do you feel hopeful? Um, and, and how and why do you feel hopeful for our future? This is a, why I feel hopeful for our future is because I think, uh, this is a religious statement, but grace always wins. Good will win. It may be terrible, and we've seen throughout history that it has been terrible. You know, uh, the Holocaust, well, the history of slavery in the United States and racial discrimination. I mean, just to name a few, but you could go back in history. It's been terrible, but good will win. I, I really believe that. Um, where I go when I get discouraged is to my friends and to to what I spoke of in the beginning, and that is that sort of contemplation and meditation. I mean, I don't need to wreak havoc on other people's lives because I don't feel so good, <laughs> you know. The, uh, but I, I really do believe good will win, and I want to be part of that good. You know, I, I want to be part of that good with you too. 
I don't know if you know that you have that impact on people that they want to step in behind you as you head forward. Well, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. My guest today has been Dr. Marianne Stevens, president of College of St. Mary. Uh, Dr. Stevens, thank you so much for joining us in this conversation. You're very welcome. And God bless you. Support for this show comes from the Greater Omaha Chamber of Commerce. We don't coast. We accomplish more together. Details at omahachamber.org. That's the end of this week's show. You can listen again to this show and others by subscribing to the podcast at livesradioshow.com and find us on social media at livesradioshow. The music playing you in and playing you out each week was created specially for the show by Andrew Bailey. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden, and this is Live's radio show and podcast. Join me next week for fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, and more.